0: I actually thought the talk started at 7.30. (laughs) In fact, where's Alex? I think he thinks it starts at 7.30 as well. (laughs) So maybe I'll hit the gong really loudly. So happy to um, to be with all of you here and to share some of the teachings and just hear a little bit about your practice today. And um, I have a confession to make—not actually a confession, but more of a self-description. I'm what uh, would be characterized in the teachings as a grasping or greed type, which means when the going gets tough, I go toward what i can feed my senses with and and that's contrasted uh, by two of the other common character types which are called the aversive type the one that kind of defaults defaults toward seeing what's wrong with things complaining mind etc and the so that's the aversive type and then there's the diluted type the ones that are just you know just get foggy don't really see and of course, everyone has all three of these types. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So we're all, we all are greed types, aversive types, and diluted types. But I lead a little bit with the greed type. And so one of the expressions of that is not only do I want everything, but I also want to give everything. So I can, um, so I can sometimes uh, get flooded with the exuberance and just wanting to share every th- single thing that I know. And so I, I've got to kind of... T- tone it back. And so I'm I'm bringing a little bit of that exuberance with me tonight in spite of being slightly (laughs) jet-lagged. Tonight I'd like to just elaborate a little bit more on the Buddha's way to well-being and happiness. That was the title of the retreat. And as I was walking in here tonight, I've was reflecting on how that this came to be such an important topic for me I, i've always loved the 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 beauty the exquisite int- the exquisite intricacies of the teachings and how they're they're like a hologram wherever you look everything connects with everything else and they're and there all the teachings i found uh, The central teachings to be very verifiable in my own experience. I don't, and one of the things I loved about the teachings when I uh, came to them is that uh, the the central um, actually demand was, don't believe me, come and see for yourself. A phrase chanted every day and Buddhist monasteries, paseko, Opanayako, Pachatanwe, Ditapu, Winyuhiti, for those who can be taught, who are interested to come and see for themselves. So that was very relieving to me that it was all about seeing for yourself and that, that all of the insight that is spoken about in insight meditation and the, the Buddha's way to happiness and well-being uh, comes out of our immediate and direct experience. And we have to slow down a little bit to be able to notice what's going on. And if we can slow down a- enough to notice what's going on, then we naturally begin to learn about the way our life works, the way our mind works. And we can see for ourselves what is it in our thoughts, our words, our actions that lead to uh, more happiness and well-being, and what leads to to um, more stress, more distress, um, more disease. So one of the things that got me excited about, especially about the topic of happiness, is that I thought of myself in my early practice i was I would characterize myself as uh, and I have before many times as a kamikaze yogi. And that meant that I just completely gave myself over to the practice. It was very interesting to me. And there was nothing in my life that was, uh, that was as interesting or compelling. And, and I didn't have a parental voice in my mind. And I know many of us are conditioned by parents and think, oh, spending months and months in silence. Uh, my dad, he was completely... Um, he didn't say a word about it. He didn't sleep so well the first time I did a three-month practice period. And he did, because he didn't know, but he didn't say anything. And so I didn't internalize this voice that you should be, your life should be defined by, by your career and what you, you know, what you acquire. And it was really kind of left up to me to figure it out. And I was drawn to the practice. And so I gave myself over to it. And and, and I learned a lot and, and had all kinds of meditative experiences, etc. And then I happened to, to uh, start managing meditation retreats, retreats just like this, sometimes literally twice the size of this we used to hold on the West Coast. And as part of my role of manager, I happened to be the, the support person or the attendant to a wonderful teacher, who was the teacher of of Joseph Goldstein, a, a what's called an anagarika, a, kind of close to a monk, a fellow named Anagarika Munindra. And I had the great pleasure of hanging out with him for several weeks as his attendant, and he was a very jolly, kind of leprechaunish character, and. You could ask him a very simple question about the teachings, and a half hour later, you would have gotten an exposition of the whole, f- of the whole Dharma. And I just followed him around, and I noticed he took great interest in everything, including I went, we went on a shopping spree, and he loved uh, boom boxes. You know those things with. The cassette player, and, the, and he looked at every single one in the store. And you know, my mind would say, "Well, boy, he seems like he's really into shopping." And but but he was just into the into the. He was just concentrated on whatever he did, and it was a, a beautiful thing to watch. His mind seemed, in those, in almost every moment, very uncomplicated, very clear, very simple. And at the end of my time with him, he'd hung out with me and, and, and I had a little bit of a, what we would call an idealized transference on him. You know, he was, this is the big guru. And so I wondered you know, what he might say to me, some words of wisdom as we parted. And his last words to me, as he looked into my eyes, he said, may you truly be happy. And most people would say, oh, that's so wonderful that he's wishing you well and wants you to be happy. And for me, it was like a, a, my heart was pierced with this, um, this sense of, oh, maybe I'm not truly happy. I had learned a lot in the practice, but it's, it made me start to wonder if my happiness was a little bit more shaky than I thought it was. And it became really obvious in that moment. So I, I started to do a little study on, on the Buddha's general teachings about happiness and some of the more specific ones. And you can see in the teachings, if you read them, it's just filled with, uh, with teachings about joy, about the joy of, of a well-collected mind, a joy of, of of giving the joy at the thought of giving joy in the act of giving joy in the memory of having given that's that's really why it's one of the pillars of the dharma is what we call dana is is giving because it it's productive of joy it it makes us happy it gives us a feeling of gladness the the joy of solitude of seclusion the joy of of non-harming which Alex spoke about last night and it's the foundation of our retreat is to cultivate a, a, a heart that doesn't cause ourselves or anyone else harm. The Buddha called this the bliss of blamelessness and, and the tremendous gift that we offer to the world if we, if we demonstrate or act in a way that he called purity of action, where our action is pure. We're not, just, we're not causing any harm. That people who come around you will be given the, the, what he called the gift of fearlessness. They don't have to be afraid of you because it's, it's such a beautiful thing to offer that, that bliss of blamelessness and just the, the, the quietness in the heart that comes from, from acting wisely and ethically, morally and, and not having your mind constantly in a state of contraction reverberating from the effects of things that you said or did when I was thinking about this today and again this will be a confession of my delusion which is one of the in the Zen tradition this is a, a common practice is confessing your delusions It actually feels good. To, but I was I had just led a retreat up in Regina, Saskatchewan where I go quite often in the prairies of Canada and I was a little bit late getting to the airport and the person at the checkout or the, the ticket counter gave me incorrect information about the time the flight was leaving and she said, you need to rush upstairs and get through security and or otherwise you'll miss your flight. And so I went with a kind of freneticness. Who was the person talking about frenetic today? A kind of freneticness, a kind of rushing energy upstairs and a little bit wired. And I was also a little bit sensitive from having been on retreat. And I went and I began to talk to the people in the line, and they were very gracious. And Canadians are amazing, if I can generalize. So gracious and so easy. They don't have that kind of um, kind of cultural bravado that Americans have. I know that's a stereotype, a generalization, but so they were very gracious. And they, the security man saw me make my way to the front of the line, and I said to him. You know, I, I need to get through here and these people are nice enough. To, and he wouldn't let me through. And because I had clearly moved to the front of the line and he saw that I was determined to get on the plate. And he, the more he pushed back, the more I started to feel that, that sense of burning and arousal and this very intense contracted feeling to the point where I there was literally venom con- coming out of my eyes. And under my breath, I said some very choice words to him. <laughs> and uh, at this point, he kind of relented. But he said, if I ever said what I said to him <laughs> again, I, wouldn't get, I would not get on a flight. So that, that, those words, that aggression that came to my lips and slipped out, um, it it wasn't just that moment it wasn't just in a vacuum it reverberated through my mind my i felt so uh, wired and anxious and regretful and guilty and, and and i'm not prone to guilt so much but it was I, it just kept playing in my mind and i realized that the effects of acting unwisely just even in this simple vignette and, and there's so many opportunities for that in our life that it really Uh, pays to to keep uh, establishing ourselves in non-harming that in fact it is that quality of non-harming that creates the sense of of ease and balance and openness that uh, allows for so much of what happens in our unfolding and you could say increase in the experience of well-being and happiness in fact it's sometimes said that trying to practice meditation, trying to train our attention to stay anchored to the living present, to, to attend very carefully to what we're doing, trying to do that and not be, not have this uh, bliss of blamelessness, this joy of, of non-harming established in our life is like trying to row a boat uh, without untying it from the dock. Your you practice just does not, it's, it's just Im- virtually impossible to come to any kind of sense of, of tranquility. And if we can't establish some measure of tranquility, it's very hard to see what's going on. And then it's very hard to learn about what causes happiness and what, uh, and what, uh, alle- you know, what alleviates suffering and what causes suffering. So the, as I studied the topic of happiness, it became clear that the happiness of a Buddha or the buddha 's way to happiness included all kinds of pleasures, all kinds of joy, as I just described the joy of non harming all the different joys that I just spoke about the joy of being able to to see the joy of, of smelling, of tasting, of touching the that these sense, these doors of perception, these senses are, are if they're open, they naturally feel happy. Our, our senses are happy senses, if they are open. If, they are, if, they are, uh, if our um, perception is clear, and you'll notice, probably even after a few hours of practice, we've had almost 24 here, that it's likely that you've quieted down a bit. And I'm curious, did your food taste differently today? Anybody willing to say out loud? Is that sacrilegious? Your food tasted differently. (laughs) You don't have to speak out loud. And how about the the sights and how about sounds? Uh, Any of you think that the sounds were distracting? I'm glad nobody says yes, because they're, oh, somebody (laughs) did. (laughs) It's okay if you said yes, but we, but sounds will become more acute. This world is noisy and we don't, we don't consider sounds a distraction in this practice. We consider them just another, another part of the creative display of our life, part of the, part of the amazing experience of being human is that we see we hear we smell we taste we feel and all of those senses become purified you could say when we are more um, more present so all kinds of pleasure comes with that and one of the things that the Buddha said about the the pleasure that comes with our senses being open. The pleasure that comes from our senses being open because we're able to uh, be here in the present moment. So I consider all of you pretty well established in what would be called purity of action. For the most part, everyone here is generally non-harming. So you have access. Because your hearts and minds are a little bit more open, you have a certain degree of wisdom that knows that it's useful to live a a non-harming life, it's useful to collect yourself. You wouldn't commit to this length of retreat if you didn't know that. But this whole world of, of sense pleasures, pleasures of the senses, the Buddha suggested in his teachings on the the cause of happiness and unhappiness, was that there are three things that we need to notice about the the pleasures that we all experience and will continue to experience and perhaps continue to experience in greater uh, detail, greater vividness, greater aliveness, greater joy. The three things are, the first one is the pleasure of it, to really take in the pleasure. Let yourself Feel the gladness that comes from feeling pleasure. So any of you who think that the teachings are about somehow abandoning pleasure, turning yourself into someone who doesn't experience, who's just so cut off from the world, and sometimes people have this idea that the teachings are all about suffering. The Buddha was called Sukhya, or the happy one. He was not called the great sufferer, but his happiness was a little bit different or you could say a little bit more expanded beyond our conventional views of what happiness is and pleasure and joy. He essentially described two kinds of happiness, two main kinds of happiness. The first kind of happiness he called uh, conventional or worldly or conditional happiness. And that's the happiness that you experience when you hear something pleasant, some great music, you taste a, pl- a taste that you really like, you, your body feels easy, you are with a friend, your work day is going smoothly. You're in the flow, so many ways that you can experience um, this kind of conditional or worldly or conventional happiness. This is what we this is the domain that we mostly live. This conventional happiness has a lot of pleasure with it, and the Buddha suggested this is what we should notice. But the second thing that he noticed that he suggested that we notice is some of its, some of the dangers, some of the, sometimes called defects, but I'll I'll call it dangers right now. What are some of the dangers to this world of incredible pleasure? One of the main defects or dangers is that the pleasure of our senses, the pleasure of a good meal, good company, a great sensual encounter, a wonderful vacation, uh, a great, I don't know, anybody want to name something that they find very pleasurable? Promotion. A great promotion, thank you. Art. Great art. The pleasure that one experiences has um, has a very short shelf life. It doesn't last so long. It comes and then it it goes quite quickly. You may have even noticed today as you ate, there was that, if you slow down enough, you notice that burst of flavor when the food went in your mouth and it just explodes in your mouth and it arises and then it fades. And especially when we're not mindful, that fading of that experience, we don't even notice it. We experience it, but we're not usually so mindful of it. And when we're not so mindful of it, we immediately get into helicopter mode, wanting to repeat it over and over again. So the pleasure is fleeting. And what often follows that fleeting pleasure is a feeling of a feeling of loss feeling of it went away and what our mind tends to do just like the helicopter arm it tends to then uh, not want to feel that sense of loss that cessation of pleasure it wants to repeat that pleasure and so our mind starts going into Uh, seeking mode, hence the, the grasping type, the greed type, looking for another pleasure, another way that I can repeat or feel good. And once I've done that, my immediate present experience, the sense of being home in the living present, stops being so pleasurable. My mind begins to associate a sense of happiness with getting the next experience. So my mind goes into a state of, we call it wanting, or waiting, or hoping, or expecting, planning, which all produce a feeling Uh, what I call suspended happiness the sense of I cannot be happy now but when I gratify or satisfy the desire or have another pleasurable experience again then I can be happy so meanwhile while I'm in a state of suspended happiness or suspended well-being my stomach is a little tight my vision is very narrow I'm not so attuned to the environment around me. My heart's not so open to the needs of my family or my friends or, or my body. I am on a mission. And you can see our world, the frenzied, busy, frenetic world is really a, a demonstration of this simple movement toward the next experience hardening into an addictive pattern that has turned our sense pleasures into a, a place that causes us suffering. This is what the Dalai Lama said in general about the, way our, the movement of our mind. He said, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, he answered, man, man because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So it is in this kind of narrow pursuit of the next pleasurable experience as juicy and delicious as they are, it's in that narrow pursuit that our mind creates the uh, the f- the future. Because of course, the future does not exist; it exists only as a as a thought in this unfolding present. But our mind projects it, creates it as the source and the place of my uh, of my relief of my happiness, of my pleasure, and leaves my body in a state of waiting. And because the future, since it has not yet arrived, and it's, our life is marked with a certain measure of uncertainty, we don't know whether the future will actually deliver what it is that I want, that I think will give me pleasure. And then what's the result of that is then we feel anxious, another, and worried. And that increases our sense of uh, freneticness. I debated about, um, about reading this but it, because it's a little bit long, but I'm going to do it anyway tonight. Because w- when one practices this toppling forward into the imagined future in a repeated way, The present moment becomes a place that's not so um, pleasant to be it becomes a a place that we're just passing through on our way to our next pleasure and it becomes sometimes an obstacle to to experiencing what we want you may have even felt it today when as you were kind of waiting for the bell to ring (laughs) Uh, when your body started to feel a little uncomfortable the present becomes so difficult to, uh, to abide in when we're in that state of waiting that our mind will just look for ways to keep filling it with, with, uh, with things that will make us not have to really experience the life of the present. Evidenced by this interesting blog post by Mark Morford. Uh, he's a blogger, I think, in the San Francisco Chronicle. This one's entitled Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. Your terrifying word of the day is micro tasking. And it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little DIY blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management. Because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds. Why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voice mail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But, hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you? A hippie? (laughs) It's a fascinating and yes terrifying idea really that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do wow, think of all the good think of all you could get done by the end of the day think of how much you could get checked off your list we are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing, so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The Internet, Internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in 2010, 10 says a stunning bit I just read in The Atlantic by way of the entrepreneur Yuri Milner, more data was created than has been created by all of humanity in the past 30,000 years. And by the year 2020, the same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed chatting with siri waving the or waving to the cctv cameras It is no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path And not feel the urge to check email find the nearest starbuck hipstamatic the hell out of the that beautiful fallen tree You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without gps Beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car How easily forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to IMS Meditation Center, I just filled in the blank, <laughs> for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day. And time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your, your breath and body thank you for all eternity." You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. <laughs> so this is a little bit of the danger of, <laughs> of depending, <laughs> depending <laughs> on sense pleasures. And the last thing that the that the Buddha spoke about, there are three things. The first one is the pleasure of the senses. Second is their defects or dangers is that you get caught on this wheel of this endless search for the next pleasurable experience and it narrows our life so much and deprives us of of that simple sense of of easing ourselves into the, the boundlessness of things right where life touches us. So deeply connected in every instant and yet we're as one poet put it, constantly running from silence. The third thing is the Buddha said, to, suggested that we, be, we understand what it means to be free of the dependency on sense desires. So this is where he suggested that there is a, a kind of well-being and happiness that um, that includes all of the pleasures of the senses but but um goes beyond it and it's a kind of well-being and happiness that we don't usually associate or we don't think about so much And what he he called that kind of happiness the happiness the unconditioned happiness or the actual word in Pali is lokutra sukha. Sukha is a word for comfort or happiness, ease. Lokutra, loka means the world. Lokutra means uh, unstuck from the world, beyond the world. In other words, it's a, a happiness or a pleasure or a sense of well-being that does not depend on conditions. It doesn't depend on satisfying some kind of hunger or thirst that just generates more thirst. Often the word for the mind, the wanting mind is tanha, which is translated as unslakeable thirst, that endless searching for that, that future that never arrives. And, there, and that's what makes our mind constantly topple forward, obsessed with what's next, is that unslakeable thirst for the experience that will bring us lasting happiness when what it actually does is it increases our sense of disease this unconditional happiness lokutrasuka beyond the power and influence of the world is a well-being that that can that can pervade even uh, can pervade joys and it can pervade sorrows you've all heard the the William Blake poem that's it's often shared, it's probably often shared here at at IMS, where he says, He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. So the happiness of a Buddha, or the potential kind of happiness and well-being, is a happiness that that understands that all pleasures, all the experiences of our life, everything, pleasures and pains, they arise and they pass away. And that in a sense, that's all, the only difference between a Buddha, which means an awakened being, a person who's awake, and an ordinary person, as a Buddha knows, an awake person. I include all of you in the moments that you notice that. A Buddha knows that whatever arises, passes away and the more we know that the more we know that from our direct and immediate experience not just as a reflection yeah everybody knows that, that things change no everyone knows that impermanence is the fragrance of every life everybody knows that intellectually but what happens when we experience that in an intimate way it begins a process of loosening of unbinding this very tight fist of grasping that tries to hold on to pleasurable experiences and as though there is something in them that we could find that gives us lasting well-being and happiness and it is it is in the very act of letting go of of kissing the joys as they fly that we experience a a kind of well-being, a kind of joy, sometimes described as the joy of equanimity, the joy of non-clinging, the joy of non-reactiveness. Now, that would have been wonderful if I could have done that in the airport in Regina, just being able to experience uh, with wisdom at that moment the the unpleasantness of, of not being able to get on my plight and, the, and being faced with the resistance of the security guard. But I, I became a little bit blinded by my ill will and my narrow pursuit of that, of the plane and lost that sense of well-being that uh, is, uh, is actually quite natural to us if we stay awake. And that's why we practice, so that this capacity to meet our experience in an open-hearted way with balance uh, becomes so strong that our one, our need to get somewhere else fades away and that we're able to roll with the inevitable um, difficulties and the joys of our life without getting so stuck. The way Hafez put it, He says, you need to learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. Sorry. And and another teacher named... Nisargadatta said, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its belief. So In this way, our pleasures can be a distraction for they merely increase the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy when in reality, it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as there's nothing wrong with me, nothing wrong. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of meditation is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on an actual ever-present experience. So this kind of well-being and happiness, this ever-present capacity to be well, regardless of the conditions, regardless of our situations, is a, a fruit of the practice that we're doing. But it, we also come to a retreat, as you probably found out today, having been very strongly conditioned to... Make uh, to make the general worldly kind of happiness our main devotion. And the effect of it is our we come on retreat, we've been moving very fast, we've been microtasking, we've been uh, associating our value and our worth with how busy we are and how filled our schedules are. And you come on retreat and you realize the effect of that. And you realize that that as... Bhante Naratna says that, you know, it's at the, some point in your meditation you will come to the realization that you're completely crazy, that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down a hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. And he says, no problem, you're no, cra- you're no crazier than you were yesterday, it's always been this way and you never noticed. <laughs> But it is a gradual process to kind of unbind and you and we use even our difficulties in the practice whatever it is that shows up that is our manure that is the that is what we use to remind us of our love of being right where we are so there's nothing if you can notice it that is outside of the practice everything will bring you here everything will will help you develop the tools of being able to accommodate both pleasurable experiences and really unpleasant ones. And usually any sign of unpleasant and and our mind just says, there's no way I can be happy now. But what you may have recognized today and what you will as you go along in the practice is sometimes unpleasant experiences. Like I had a lot of pain in my knees in my practice. At times they were, it was searing, it was, it was burning, it was stabbing, it was, it was throbbing. It was every kind of unpleasant sensation. And yet when I became interested in that, curious about it, when I connected with those sensations, stayed with them to the extent that my mind could, could open to them a little bit, I began to see that it was possible to have intensely painful experiences and have my mind not reactive at all. A kind of happiness. Happiness of not being so reactive. I didn't think that was possible before. I thought if I'm uncomfortable I'm suffering. To be able to see that, as you've probably heard before, that the pain is inevitable. The suffering part is optional. And we can just, in little moments at a time, test that out. Every time something unpleasant comes. Can I experience this without suffering? And if you do that, even for a little moment, you are tasting a a small measure of of this well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. So when the Buddha realized that the happiness of the sense pleasures was not exactly a reliable refuge, not exactly um, a cause of any kind of lasting happiness. He was he basically went into shock initially. And what really reminded him of that unreliability was the the realization that, um, that everything changes he He saw that the the glow of youth fades, and that he had been up to a certain point oblivious to the glow of health fades and the glow of life fades fades. and he realized that he had so much pride, so much identity, so much clinging to youth and health and life that um, he saw that these that these changing conditions, these conditions that are part of every Buddy's life are those that we can't so easily cling to and find any kind of relief in and then he realized if 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 I am if I'm aging if I'm subject to illness if I'm dying and everything I tend to search for to make me happy is also subject to those same changes where's happiness to be found So you can see his teachings came out of his own recognition of the unreliability of of the world of change as beautiful and as poignant. Just even the fact of us sitting here is amazing this evening. The the fact that we can see and hear and smell and just be together and communicate and understand each other. It's amazing. But yet, this condition will change. And if we aren't able to kiss this joy as it flies, we suffer. Our mind shuts down, we contract. All of this is about moving our life in a direction, turning our our life toward A more reliable sense of well-being and happiness. After the Buddha realized that the ordinary or conventional or worldly pleasures, as delicious as they are, could not give any lasting satisfaction, he started to meditate. And he soon accomplished the the greatest heights that uh, the teachers of the day were offering. And elements of which are in the practice that you're doing on this retreat. He experienced his mind and body come together in a a sense of unity. He experienced the sense of of single-pointedness. He just used his attention, as we do, to gather his mind here, to train it to stay here, to sustain that, um, that attention here. And with it came all kinds of pleasure, an incredible sense of interest, a sense of, connecting with life right where life was touching him and he experienced a great sense of happiness a deep sense of happiness a a kind of temporary freedom from all of the torments that our mind comes up with all the ideas that something else will make me happy all the resistance all the aversion all the restlessness all the doubt everything that usually torments us it went away while he was sitting he experienced what he called unmixed happiness, sometimes the called the joy of a concentrated mind or a unified mind. And it lasted quite a long time. And he said that this is really onward leading, this is helpful to have some, we have to have some kind of experience of of relief from the torments of our mind. But at a certain point he realized that um, that, that even though that happiness was l- more enduring and um, more joyous, more delicious, it was also changeable and realized even the most delicious meditation experience, eventually, like everything else, will, will fade away. And then he realized that purity of mind, although it brings a great sense of joy, mind that is free of, of, of being tormented, even though there's a lot of happiness in it, it's not, uh, it's not free. And you may even have noticed, and many people come to a a retreat and come back to retreats so they can replicate the experience they had on the previous one. Any of you willing to admit that? (laughs) Now some of that is is wholesome and healthy, but often that attempt to replicate that, even those most delicious experiences that have faded, often the effort to... um, to replicate it puts us right back into that narrow channel of postponing suspended happiness a sense that i'll be happy when i achieve that experience and is a is what the buddha called a corruption of our practice he also said that these kinds of experiences are springboards they they are they are. They inspire us, and they keep us going in our practice. But if you, if you get caught in trying to replicate that, uh, it actually causes more distress. So that's all that was being offered. That at least that he found in his day, and then he realized that going to the, getting caught up in the sense pleasures wasn't so useful, as a a source of reliable happiness. And then he tried going the opposite way, denying himself everything, denying himself any pleasure. And that didn't work either. That just made his body weak and sick, tired, unable to practice. And then he realized that, yes, this this sense of unification, one-pointedness, Beautiful. But it has to, there has to be a use for it. You can't, it's not an end in itself. It's just another changing experience. But it can be used, that power of our attention, when it becomes very strong in the present, it can be used to see more clearly what's going on. And it's at that point that he began to do m- more of what we're doing here of paying attention moment by moment to the flow of what was happening. And then he began to notice a few things. He noticed as he attended to his physical experience, his body, his sensations, his aches, his pains, is that they were continually changing, constantly in flux. And he noticed that his moods were continually changing. Noticed that the thoughts and images that were coming through his mind, continually changing. And the more he paid attention to these changing experiences, the the more sharp his attention became, became. And it was as though by paying attention to changing experiences his mind and of course I'm just using language that can never quite capture what that experience is but his mind became brighter and brighter literally shining in its clarity and everything became more and more clear and the more he saw this experience of changing conditions changing thoughts changing sounds changing sensations changing moods the more he saw that none of it was really none of it could really define him it wasn't really a me or a mine or a self he saw that that to hold on to it would just create suffering would be not in harmony with life the way it is and the more he let go of trying to control or arrange or manipulate or make his experience a certain way, the wider his lens came, the wider his pasture. And the wider his pasture, the wider the lens of his mind, the softer his heart, the stronger his attention. And he began to have a sense that he was experiencing a well-being and a happiness that didn't depend on the what was going through his mind, didn't depend on what he was seeing or hearing or smelling or tasting. He could relate to his experience rather than being bound up and relating from his experience. He was able to experience the joys and the sorrows and be unmoved so this may be, this is a bit of a more challenge in our world of what we call the worldly winds of being praised being blamed having gain having loss having pleasure pain fame and shame, but it is the same quality of aware presence moment by moment that, that, um, that allows us to be well regardless of the conditions that are blowing through our lives because all of those will. So as the Buddha sat enjoying the the joy of equanimity, sometimes described uh, as a kind of purity of view, able to see things very clearly. So you can see the trajectory of practice is in some way The foundation is purity of action. Having our actions be non-harming. And then purity of mind. uh, Our mind and body in harmony. Our mind and body in the same location. A sense of one-pointedness. Connecting with life right where it is. And then the last part of our practice is purity of view. Being able to see clearly. That holding on causes suffering. Letting go... Letting things be brings a sense of ease and freedom. So a very central teaching, very central practice is, as you've probably heard many times before, is letting go or letting be. As Ajahn Chah said, if you let go, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. Your problem-making will ease. Or as Ajahn Sumedho says, for, as he describes, for minds that are obsessed by compulsive doing and thinking, Simplify your practice down to just two words. Let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and read the sutras and the Abhidharma, that's Buddhist psychology, learn the and the Prajnaparamita, and the Hinayana, become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of being a, a world's authority on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, let go. He says, I didn't do anything but this for a few years. I'd just say, let go, let go. Uh, Every time I tried to figure things out, I'd say, let go until the desire would fade. He says, so I'm trying to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) But he doesn't stop there. He says that the important thing in practice is to be determined to be awake. It's not to be conceited. You, know, you don't have to be a big meditator. You don't have to be a Buddhist. But you have to stay with your practice. Even when the going is tough, remind yourself of this capacity to be awake. Remind yourself of the, of the Dharma, of the way things are the teachings. Remind yourself of the, of the Sangha and stay with it, letting go of everything that arises and passes that we habitually cling to and get lost in and identify with. He said to keep that letting go as a constant refrain in your mind so it just pops up on its own no matter where you are. So as the Buddha relaxed in this sense of equanimity, this joy of, this taste of freedom from, from needing things to be a particular way to be well, the more he rested in that kind of openness, it dawned on him in a flash of insight that the very unshakable peace and freedom that he had and reliable refuge that he had so longed for was none other than the very nature of his own heart and mind. That our own, our mind's natural state is open and free. But we've become so conditioned to enter into that narrow view that I cannot be happy now that view that my well-being depends on what's next that we have overlooked this vital point this resource that is your own could say buddha nature and so what we're doing here is recovering it's healing it's re- reclaiming our heritage as Thich Han put it you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living. He says, stop being that destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. From the Buddha, I know of no other single thing so conducive to misery as this uncultivated, untrained heart and mind. I know of no other single thing so conducive to well-being as this cultivated and well-trained mind." Or put in slightly more humorous terms, from Hafez, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's sit quietly. The words of Gendon Rinpoche, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises, in your body and mind, has no ultimate importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything, and notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open. Relax this tight fist of grasping. Infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything unfolds of itself. May all beings be truly happy. May all beings be free. Thank you for your kind attention on the first night. It's sometimes hard to listen through a talk on the first night and congratulations for making it through the first day, not easy. Uh, Really appreciate your attention. And we now have about uh, 20 minutes for walking practice. Is that right? Yeah, we have about a 20 minute period for walking, so enjoy the evening and we will be back and sit with a little chanting at the next sitting. Thank you. At nine. At nine. So it's like half an hour. Oh, a half an hour, sorry.